Okay, so I think uh, what we're going to do is, Rob, we wanted to pick your brain a little bit on a couple of the articles that you've written, get a little bit of the backstory there, and then also present um, almost like a, a quantitative side to the qualitative questions that you're answering, because I think you have a really, really good insight on that, the, the qualitative storytelling around Canadian housing. Um, and Jeff's put together some really interesting data on that and spends a lot of time analyzing it. So, uh, Jeff, if you want to get started, just specifically outlining a couple of the, the articles that, that Rob's done and, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one, one of the overarching questions we'll kind of try to address with this is uh, whether or not a return to affordability is still possible. Um, I know that's something you, you've been thinking about and writing about. So and I know a lot of viewers as well um, are definitely have that on their mind. Um, but specifically, um, I know one of your most recent articles on housing was called Boomers Stop Bragging About Your Second Homes. So um, I saw there's a lot of online feedback about that one. Um, just kind of want to understand the background and what, what you thought from the reception you heard. Well, the backstory on that is that a, uh, a millennial um, who lives in Kingston and is extremely frustrated at not being able to afford a house in her hometown uh, where she always envisioned being able to buy an affordable house, wrote a piece for the Global Mail telling boomers to stop bragging essentially about their second home. She'd actually overheard a conversation on the street and it just sort of grated on her. And she thought it was sort of symbolic of this attitude boomers have that I'll just grab up as much housing as I can, not realizing that every time they do that, they're crowding young people up because their driving prices higher. So the, um, so the first time I've written about the boomer advantages. Um, but this one kind of got a momentum of its own and um, a lot of feedback. And I would say the responses are running 99 to one that basically boil down to, for millennials, tough. Uh, we fought and earned every dime of our home equity. And if you do the same, you'll get it too. And if you, if you don't, you're either not working hard enough or you're a whiner. Right. And I know you've looked at a lot of our our charts before, including like the home price to income ratios. Do you think um, that older generation is aware of just how tough it's become? No. no, they're not aware at all. Now, what they fall back on is the fact that interest rates were sky high in the 1980s. And even through the 90s, they were still quite high. And what they think is that that was basically the ultimate challenge for home ownership. And to an extent, they're right. I mean, interest rates were incredibly high, double digits. I mean, for even for one year mortgages in the early eighties, but house prices were a lot smaller. And I actually did an article a few years back looking at who had it worse. And I think the boomers might've incrementally been worse, but this goes back probably to 2018 or 19. The pandemic has completely blown that argument to smithereens. Low interest rates applied against a ginormous principle outweighs high interest rates applied against a very small principle. And back then, you know, the, the, the income to, uh, to house price ratio was much, much more reasonable than it is now. It's completely detached from reality now. And I don't think people understand the fact that, you know, house prices have increased at rates that have way exceeded income. So I know low mortgage rates help offset that, but I think we've tapped that out. Right. And I guess, what could we be doing more to help people um, understand that? Is it, you think, like stories, anecdotes, or do people need to see data? I think some really good, crisp, clean data would help tell the story. But a lot of housing is felt in the gut, and it's not a number story. It's 
I wanted a house, it was my dream and I got one and it's appreciated in value and I'm just glowing with the success of it all. And I don't, can't really even hear, my ears won't open up to the message that it's hard, it's hard for young people, it's not happening for them. You know who really get it in the boomer set are parents of young adults, uh, especially the parents who don't have the wherewithal to help their kids buy. Grandparents sometimes get it. Um, but if you're a boomer and your house has doubled and tripled in value and you know, um, you're just constantly reveling in how much money your, your equity is increasing every month. You don't really, I, I find they're not really that open to this, this argument that we've had a, a decisive change in affordability and that we are pricing a generation of young people. I talk to the young people, they firmly believe they will never own a house. I think some of them are a bit too gloomy. I think various circumstances will work in their favor. Maybe they will buy in a small community or maybe their incomes will increase or maybe prices will go down something's going to happen i think more people will get into housing than they think and i also encourage people to recognize that you can buy a house in your 30s and be perfectly fine i mean i'm now talking to 24 year olds who are like drooling at the prospect of buying a house and i'm thinking why would you want to own a house at that age it's a good point it's a really good point um uh, interestingly on the on, on what you're mentioning about uh, the second home step and, and, you know, Jeff and I wanted to, to get a little bit qualitative too, uh, or sorry, quantitative too. Like, I think it was, is it 10% of, um, of, of owners in Canada um, on average, I think own more than one property. And then it, it's higher, I think like 12 or 13% peaking in like in Toronto. Right. So it seems to be concentrated to urban areas based on your experience, you know, and being in, in an area that, maybe you're getting a lot of stories out of Toronto. Does it seem to be like, does the, does the suffering seem to be more of an urban thing or is it starting to spread to some of these submarkets across Ontario? Definitely spreading. Um, it's been a Toronto story for probably at least half a dozen years, Vancouver too. And then it spread to the surrounding communities outside of Vancouver and outside of Toronto. And it's sort of every year or two, you know, you sort of go an extra hundred kilometers you know, uh, on the periphery of those cities and more people are complaining they can't afford it. But what's happened in the pandemic, and it's a story well told, is that people have been looking to other communities to buy. They want bigger yards and more bedrooms. And you can get that uh, with your Toronto money and in cities like Belleville and Gananoque and uh, Bancroft and Barrie. And those the prices in those smaller towns have increased hugely on a percentage basis more than the big cities. And local people there who thought uh, at least one of the compensations for living in a small town is we may not have the excitement and the job opportunities of big city, but we have affordable housing. All of a sudden, no, you don't. And talk to people in Halifax. It used to be a nice little affordable city, like cosmopolitan, great living conditions. People are getting priced out of the market there now. And it's happening in all kinds of different communities. And just because their prices aren't a million dollars average like, like Toronto doesn't mean we're not pricing people out when you add hundred thousand dollars in average price in 12 months which is what happened in a lot of towns yeah i mean bancroft showed up in the data a lot as like i think the most recent month their year over year was over 50 percent growth and to me the big concern there is that a lot of this represents what i would call entry-level markets right for young people and for millennials um how much of of the the do you of what you're describing happened do you think as a result of or promptly thereafter the implementation of the non-resident speculation tax in the greater golden horseshoe like when because what i saw at least being an agent in, in the toronto market was you starting to see a lot of that that investor capital move from outside of toronto and just go okay well we, we just got our buying power reduced by 15 percent. let's go take it to ottawa or kitchener waterloo or whatever well there's no doubt that investors are i mean 
in, investors, I assume, I assume some intelligence on their part. And I assume that you don't want to keep throwing money into hot markets that are peaking. You're looking for buy low opportunities uh, with it, with some, with some um, <clears throat> potential for future, future growth. And so a lot of these towns where money's going, I think is being bought on that, on that rationale by investors. But I think there's a huge, um, uh, it's basically the drive until you qualify philosophy. I can't afford Toronto and I can't afford Hamilton and Burlington. So I'm just going to drive. I'm going to drive outside of Toronto in any number of directions, just not south because the lake is there. Uh, but you're looking for affordable housing. And I think that is driving a lot of it too. I mean, I um, we do a, a colleague and I do a podcast. It's called Stress Test. It's a personal finance podcast for millennials and gen y and we did an episode on people moving outside of the uh, outside of the big cities for affordable housing and we got a guy who moved from toronto to st john new brunswick that's how far he went for affordable housing and boy did he ever find it he got a house for ninety nine thousand dollars um but you know what st john's has attracted a lot more people and the housing market there has shot up and um you know now st john longtime st john residents are, are wandering around thinking what the heck happened here yeah, I definitely recommend um, checking out Rob's podcast, uh, Stress Test. Um, a lot of good episodes on personal finance and definitely housing as well. Um, you know, I want to share something on the screen here. Um, you might have already seen this before, but um, I, I find looking at the data just gives perspective of um, how, how crazy home prices are right now. So to set the stage a bit, um, we're essentially looking at two lines here. Okay. The top one is the home price, and we're projecting over the next 25 years. The bottom one, that's not the x-axis, that's actually uh, incomes down here, right? So we've set the current home price based on the August benchmark of uh, 738000 and then current individual income of about 50000 So even if we bump this up to um, generously, say, $90,000 for, say, a household, there's still a, a large gap um, between uh, incomes and home prices. And so if I scroll up here, we can see that um, the growth rate for incomes has been uh, historically 3% or less. If we look at home prices, it's been about 7%. So naturally you're gonna see home prices detached, right? And we, we've seen the price to income ratio just expand. And if we just keep projecting what's already happened out another 25 years, we can see how extreme that becomes. So we're looking at 25 years, um, just based off of the 6.5% growth rate, you know, home price of $3.6 million, um, while incomes are still 188. And so when we look at the 6.5%, this was actually based off of that change from July to August. So a lot of people say, you know, home prices have slowed down, right? We're not seeing the rapid increases anymore. And that is true. But um, from July to August, price increased by 0.5%. When we annualize that, we get the 6.5. Yeah, yeah. So even with that slowed down pace, um, you know, there, there's still problems that this causes. Well, when I look, at, when I look at your chart, I wonder why this hasn't this discrepancy between income growth and house price growth hasn't already stopped the market in its tracks so where's the grease coming that's keeping this going um a lot of it is parental money something that is totally not tracked at all and really should be um i've seen stats saying about two three and a half 
out of 10 buyers have uh, family help. I don't believe that. I think it's got to be a little bit higher than that, or at least higher than that in some of the big cities. Um, I think one of the under uh, undertold stories here is that how, how homeownership is migrating to uh, something that will be uh, available to higher middle income people and higher income people and the middle class and the lower middle class are not going to, they're not going to have a sniff of homeownership in any big city. And the problem is that we, our mindset is that the homeownership dream is the great Canadian dream and it's widely available to people. And I think we're at this inflection point where we still believe that, but the numbers show it's not true. And right we are not mentally adjusted to this. And I think that accounts for a lot of the anguish people are feeling about not owning a home. We're like London, we're like Hong Kong, we're like New York City. Most young people don't really think they're ever gonna own a house right, house right in the city. But in Canada, we think we do and we can't figure out why it's not happening. Well, your chart shows why. Right. So is that, sorry to interrupt you there, Jeff, but is that, is that like a, a shift in, in consumer sentiment that needs to, to change and get rid of the, 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 the finality of the erasure of the Canadian dream, let's call it, or, um, or, or like, cause I always, I've always talked about this as though we're going to end up with a, a European housing model, right? Like, and, you know, very low ownership, uh, especially among young people, everybody, everybody urban rents, you know, a lot of multi-generational ownership in suburban areas. Um, is that what we're heading for? And if so, like, cause I guess the, the challenge of in imagining that is that we don't have land scarcity like they do in, you know, in maybe Hong Kong as an example, or right. you know, in, in Europe, um, where do you, where are you at on that? Well, we have lots of land, but it's in places that pe- not a lot of people don't, not a lot of people want to live. You know, I mean, I grew up in Toronto, lived there for about 30 odd years, 30 years, something like that. Anyway, um, Toronto people don't like to move. I think it's hugely notable that a lot of them have moved in the pandemic to places uh, as far away as, uh, you know, as, as St. John your Brunswick, just, just for argument. But generally speaking, that is not something they like to do. And I think once the economy normalizes, and the pandemic goes away and life returns to normal in the big city and it, it, Toronto exerts its power as an economic you know, uh, focus point in Canada, I think the desire to move to far from places is going to shrink right back to where it was. And people are going to want to stay in the city. So we have lots of land. I mean, you could build, you know, uh, in, in many different parts of the country, but people are not going to want to live there, I think, in, in, in a normal world. So um, that brings us to, you know, living in, you know, suburbs that are going to be built up in communities further uh, northeast and west of Toronto. And, you know, uh, so they'll build them and the 401 will get more crowded and your commutes will be all the longer because working at home will be maybe good for some days of the week and for some jobs, but uh, not for everything. And uh, I think we just get some sort of a gridlock. I keep wondering when we're going to start to pivot to the European model that you just described, but I don't think mentally we're even close to ready. So, and, and I, 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 I was, so I'm so sorry, Jeff, but yeah, like from an infrastructure perspective, we're behind too, right? Like, you know, the European model works because you can jump on a, on a bullet train to, to most major sub sub markets in, in your area, right? Rather than what we have going on here. Yeah, we're, we're a car country, but you know what? We're, we're a country with a small population, comparatively speaking, and a ginormous land mass. And I know a lot of our population is sort of concentrated uh, in, in parts of the country, but we... Um, we, we act like we have infinite space, but we don't. We only, we have the, the space we want to live in is actually very, very contracted, but we haven't, you're right. The infrastructure hasn't, um, isn't developed to, to a point where, yes, where you could be living like in, uh, 
sort of uh, Port Hope or Trenton or Belleville or commute an hour trip to Toronto and then take the train back again. We're not even close to that. No one's even talking about building that. Look how long they've been talking about building the high-speed train between the uh, Montreal, Ottawa and Toronto, talking for 10 years. I mean, I was a business reporter like, like 20 years ago, like writing about politicians talking about this project that's never happened. So I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. It's much needed. And I think it'll be helpful, but I don't see it happening. Yeah, I think one of the big issues is also um, with so many be- people being pushed out of actually owning, that just means more competition amongst renters, right? The properties. Um, and so I want to show you this chart here, um, which is focused in Toronto, but uh, I think it's quite interesting. So what we're looking at here is um, condo prices and the line represents the percentage of leases going above ask. So not sales, but actual rental units. And we can see going back to August, 2020, there's about five to 6% of uh, leases going above the asking price. This spiked up to over 30% of leases um, in the 31st week of 2021. So around August. Um, and so we're seeing that competition um, for rental units already, right? Yeah. And so I, th- I think that's one of the big concerns where people feel like if they don't, if they own, they can kind of, to an extent, lock in what their future costs might be, I and and, and they're just worried what will happen if they continue to rent. You know, I I just starting to come around to this and think about this idea, but I'll throw it out there that the rental crisis is worse than the home ownership crisis. I mean, anecdotally, and, and this might actually be an interesting thing to explore on one of your qualitative stories is, is you know, I represent a lot of um, landlords as, as seller clients right now. And, and what's happening is you're seeing, let's say a duplex, you know, a lot of my clients purchased duplexes maybe five years ago. And so they put it up for sale. You got two, two units in it. Buyer comes in, they want to owner occupy, they evict two tenants. In order for that tenant to find what I would call identically replaceable rental, they're going to have to drive, I would say, on average, an hour away from where they are, right? So, and that's in the GTA, right? So how do you, like, now that they've shut off themselves off from employment, you know, and, and, and I don't know, I don't know how you reconcile for that. I don't, I don't know how you do that either, but we've boxed ourselves into a position where we've got super expensive housing and that has led to unaffordable renting. And, you know, I think we're, we're, it's at a certain point, you as a personal finance writer, I'm struggling to come up with messages that have at least a little bit of hope for these people who are, who are sort of shut out of both systems. I mean, I can make a case for buying a house out in the boonies because you have a house and it's yours. But to rent out there, it's, it's, I struggle to make that case, you know. I mean, so what, what am I supposed to tell people? Like get a roommate at age 30? You know, um, buy a house with your parents. Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I'm, I've, one of the few concepts that I think has any hope here is multi-generational housing. You know, from families pooling their resources and buying sort of duplexes and, and, and um, solving two housing problems in one stroke. But that's not going to work for a lot of people. And so they're left with, if I can't afford a house and the numbers categorically say I can't, then I want to rent. And how do I save for a house if my renting is maxing me out? Yeah, I think a lot of people um, with these affordability issues, um, you know, I think they're unfortunately going to just be selling for lower and lower standards of living, right? Having lived in San Francisco for three years, um, I mean, I had a friend who in his 30s was living with eight other people in a two-bedroom unit. 
um, still paying $900 a month or 800, 900. Um, so I, I think we can't underestimate um, how long this could go on for without some kind of meaningful action to address it, right? Because um, on an individual basis, you do what you can. Maybe it's um, getting roommates, maybe it's moving far away, but um, it really, we really need leadership on this. Yeah, you know, I, I think that we're, there's all this talk about building affordable housing. Uh, and I think the, the assumption of a lot of uh, people is that it's going to be, you know, um, for owners, but we need rental stock badly. I mean, uh, as a young person living in Toronto, I lived in high rise apartments, you know, that were rental. That's all they were. There was, no, there was no ownership. It was a rental building. And they were a bit, you know, off their prime years back then. We need people to build new things like that. We need a forest of them in big cities. I mean, there's some rental buildings going up in Ottawa, Ryan, but they're all luxury rental. So what does that mean? That means rent of $3,000 a month for a two bedroom. Now they got it all duded up to look like a condo. They put a few stainless steel appliances in and you get a locker and a parking spot, but it's 3K for a two bedroom. I mean, that they're going for a professional, I just want to be footloose and fancy free young renter or downsizing groomers and that sort of thing. That is not for someone who's just getting started in the workforce. Yeah. And on the topic of Ottawa, maybe I'll share one last thing here. Um, because I know Toronto gets a lot of coverage, so does Vancouver. So I try to share some, shed some light on Ottawa too. Um, in this chart here, I mean, we can see the average sale price, 1980, $63,000. <laughs> um, people who've only been following the housing market the past five years might be shocked by that number. Um, so, I mean, the other thing that stands out to me is the number of active listings. So if we look at the peak here in around 1995, there's 6,400 listings in Ottawa. So lots of inventory for people to choose from. If you go to 2020, less than a thousand. So never inventory, the options have never been this low as long as this has been tracked by Korea. And um, first of all, I, I think people are wondering what's causing um, the housing crisis. I mean, there's lots of issues, but really you need to have inventory so that people have options. They're not all competing for the same units. So what's, um, your, what's your take on why there are so few houses for sale? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I, I think one of it, one of the reasons would be that people don't see a reason to sell anymore when they move. Um, they, they can use a HELOC to, yes. to keep that home and then get a second one. Um, and I think to be honest, the HELOC is probably one of the main reasons or one of the big reasons why, um, we're not seeing a huge number of new listings and we're seeing people own multiple homes because they don't have to sell. Um, there's also been some government incentives to age in place, which is not a bad thing. Um, but again, um, just less, much less people selling them in the past. Yeah, I, I also think there's an element of why would I sell when prices are going up 20% year over year? I'll exactly. just sit here and push it off and push it off and, uh, and see how things go. So I think, I think there's a interesting interesting mix of figures but that's a super important element of this is people say supply they're going to build more houses but if we had the normal level of people selling that would that would offset this lack of construction that we allegedly have i mean i exactly housing starts and they're sky high i mean uh, they were yeah. they were quite sufficient until the pandemic made everybody just go nuts to own a house yeah resale is supply too like that's part of the, the discussion that's being left out out of curiosity, how much would you say that, like, you know, some of the woes that you're describing for people on the on the lower end of the rental spectrum 
is indicative of that we might just be seeing a K-shaped recovery coming out of this, you know, you know, this pandemic response that, you know. Yeah, I, I think I think there's something something to that. But um, you know, when I when I see that um, rents are starting to firm up in the Toronto area, I mean, there was there was a bit of a uh, depression in rental costs, and you're looking at the year over year. The, the momentum is on the rise. The year over year comparison, I think they're still a bit low, but they're on the rise and. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of people who got rental breaks in the, in the pandemic are, uh, are going to see the end of those breaks. And if your income isn't uh, at a certain level, you're going to get crushed by it. And uh, um, but this is this is the story of the of the housing market to me. You know, it's like it's like driving this huge wedge between the haves and the have nots or even the have sums. Um, you know, it's it. it um Homeownership, we we understand that, but now there's this rental aspect to it, to it too. You know, I mean, what if you're what if you're not able to compete with other renters, like in your chart there? You know, yeah. you find you find a place, it looks good, it's affordable. Then you you get there, and um, there's three other people there, each offering uh, you know hundred or two hundred dollars more per month. It's like you, that, you know you struggle to get to the base amount that they had on the ad or the listing you saw. But now you saw that. You know, what it becomes is Toronto only going to be a city for uh, people who make a hundred thousand and up. Yeah. And are, are you hearing people just kind of giving up and thinking of leaving the country? Is that something you're starting to see? I'm hearing yeah. people say, oh, I'm so disgusted, I'm going to move to blank. But I don't, I don't really know of that happening in a big way or a way that's got anybody's radar pinging quite yet. But it's being talked about. Yeah. I mean, people are looking at, you know, various U.S. cities, uh, you know, where housing is just massively more affordable. Of course, there's a lot to take in when you're comparing life here and life there. It's not just the housing prices, there's a bunch of other variables, but I think people are definitely looking. And I hear of people who have immigrated to Canada and decided, I think I'll go back home because on balance, like if life would be more affordable there. And, uh, but it's anecdotal and I don't want to draw any big uh, conclusions about what the trends are, but I think people are talking about this. What are some key pieces of data that um, you wish you had access to around the housing market or demographics that would well, maybe help paint a better story? You know, I think I think the income in, you see, income data is hard for me to come by because Statistics Canada is way behind on it. And I'm, I, I feel like I have to be a data miner to just go get, find out what median household incomes were uh, up until, you know, I, I get them up until the 2016 census Then I'm using uh, the Bank of Canada's inflation adjuster to try and get them up to date. So to get decent data on the, on the progression of prices in, nationally in various cities and the progression of income, and just to look at all that daylight opening up between the two of them, I think that would, that's, that would be super important for telling the story. I mean, it's, I know that, um, I know that low interest rates are a big help here, but as I say, I think we've tapped out the benefit from that and we are sitting on the floor of interest rates. And if we're not, if interest rates are going to go down, the story that's going to be telling is economic catastrophe because we already, like we have ultra spectacular low interest rates and there's not a lot, not a lot of, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the Bank of Canada's overnight rate now? Is it, uh, uh, is it 25, is it 50? I think it's 25. Yeah, okay, so you're gonna to go to zero and then go negative. Well, that, that tells you the economy's on its back. And how, you know, how the, the price of housing is gonna be the last thing people are worrying about. You know, I think we, the pandemic, the pandemic was a complete wild card. It was an interesting surprise. Um, 
but I would not expect many more you know, surprises to work out favorably for housing. I'm just wondering, before the pandemic's over, I'll, I'll just sort of blue, the opposite of blue sky with you. Um, let's say the economic recovery is a little disappointing and there's a fourth wave and a fifth wave, and um, somehow the Bank of Canada manages to kick rates up a little bit, but they have to pause and the economy's not so good. Maybe that's not so good for housing. So we get a little bit higher interest rates. We don't get a very much stronger economy. Maybe that will stall things out a little bit. Let us let us plateau at least. You know, right. I mean, in, 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 there was a big burst in housing. What was it, 2017? Yep. yep. And then after that, things calmed down a little bit. I don't, you know, I was writing less about housing in 2019 and early 2020 because it seemed to be calming down. People weren't quite as upset about it. And then we had this this huge interruption. Maybe we maybe we come out the other side of this and a little bit of calm takes place and house prices right. maybe are flat year over year, down a little bit in some markets, but not panic them out, but just maybe let people catch up a bit. Yeah, so you, you were mentioning that spike in 2017, right? So um, that's this year. We're looking at, again, month over month change. And we could see in 2017 is um, followed by quickly some declines in prices. Um, so the, the, the change we've seen in, uh, 2021 uh, makes this look minuscule, right? Um, you know, this price have decelerated, but have not had a negative month since April 2020. Um, and I find it pretty interesting to look historically um, because we see, you know, there's a lot of months with 1% growth, um, maybe slightly higher, and then, you know, a few months with negative growth, and it's just been more of a cycle. But um, there's only been a couple of times historically where we've just seen nonstop um, prices. Yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's so artificial in a way because it's driven by exceptionally low interest rate. We had a unique economic setback that left people with good buying power untouched, and they actually managed to accumulate more wealth. Plus, we gave them low interest rates, so of course, right. housing got got uh, got grabbed up. But this is this is never going to happen again. I mean, this is this is a one-off special one lifetime lottery win for housing. So get back to the real world. I think we're going to see. I would expect to see more of those spikiness that you saw. I mean, I've learned never bet against the housing market, calling for crashes and, and saying it's a bubble and expecting big corrections. I don't know on that. Um, I do know that uh, my wife and I bought our first house in Toronto in 1992, and it was after, it was during the early phases of a 10-year bear market for housing in Toronto. And every house we looked at was on the market for about 50,000 less than it had sold for in the previous 18 months. And these were young couples selling to just sell and run. I knew nothing about finance. I would have bought a dozen houses back then if I had any sense at all. And um, they'd all be worth a million or two million right now. But um, anyway, it did show me that it's possible, even in a great market like Toronto, which has great fundamentals for the long term, I wouldn't hesitate for a second to be a long term owner in the city. Um, but, you know, every so often things go off the rails and I, I do wonder if such a thing could happen, maybe in a, in a mild sort of way where we get more of that spikiness and where people start to think, wait a second, house prices are coming down, I got a raise, all of a sudden there's a bit of equilibrium there, maybe I've got a little hope that I can get together a down payment and afford my mortgage. Yeah, um, so one interesting study we did a few months ago is we looked at um, all of the properties in Toronto where which were both bought and leased in the past two years to understand um, which or what percentage is cash flow positive versus negative, and that's assuming 20% down payment. And we found that well over 80% of properties would be cash flow negative. Um, and so, obviously, you could be still um, 
having positive net income on that and uh, increasing your equity. But to me, that tells me that people are looking for continued price growth if they're willing to suffer through um, negative cash flow. Yeah, so, I, 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 you know what? I, I'm just amazed at how real estate has trans, trans, uh, transmogrified itself from a commodity you own. I have my house, I own it. Yes, I expect it to go up in value, but it's where I live. Now it's become a, a primary re, uh, investment asset for a lot of people. Like they don't want to own stocks and bonds much as they've done well, just like housing the past year. I want to own a second property. I own, like how many people have I heard say, I own a rental property in the past 12 to 24 months, far more than the past previous 20 years. It is a thing now. And um, it's it's um, like real estate is sort of soaked into our, like soaked in to the soil of our, of our, of our sort of national being. And it's, it, it is more important as a financial asset than anything else. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know how we, I don't know sort of where we go from here because we're all at a fever pitch and we expect this trend line to continue and continue. And if it doesn't, uh, maybe that, maybe that bring, maybe we get a little, little bit of a, of a rough period for reflection. And I think that would be quite helpful. I mean, it's almost like we need to stop talking and obsessing about housing for a little while. Yeah, that would be nice. seems like it's all, all we read about these days um, and for good reason. Um, I mean, it's definitely top of mind for so many people. You know, it's turning it's, into a it's turning into a social story as much as an economic story. Yeah. Like an angry young generation who are, uh, you know, who are feeling. I think I think up until about you know six, eight, twelve months ago, they were shocked and surprised by all this. Now they're getting angry and bitter, and I don't know where that takes us. Right. Um, so we're talking about um, whether a return to affordability is possible. Um, some of the big concerns I is, I mean, the country is just so reliant on housing prices, right? Everyone, I mean, I think over 60% are homeowners um, um, using it as a primary investment vehicle. And then the other thing is we've seen supply just absolutely shrink in so many cities that um, from my perspective, that supply has to increase, whether people selling their homes or we build more um, one way or another, it's hard to imagine a meaningful correction without that happening. And then the other thing is, say a correction does happen to bring back to, say, affordability, that would still have to be very significant, right? Um, I mean, in the past year, we've seen some cities increase by over 30%. Yeah, so. you're, you're right. I mean, I, I did an article uh, a month or two ago, basically saying that um, if we rolled back, even if we had a severe correction, you know, we would still be well ahead of 2019 levels, which we a lot of people thought were very expensive back then. I mean, a lot of the smaller communities were fine back then, but all the big cities were prohibitively expensive. And there was a fair amount of like, uh, you know, um, complaining about prices even then. So, and yet that would have to take us like down 30% from where we are now. That would be a tremendous traumatic pullback. It'd be bad for everybody, bad for the economy, bad for the, um, bad for the personal finances of owners, et cetera. Um, we don't want to see that. So it's almost like, you know, the, the, um, the political parties are treating this problem as if we just come up with a few tricks to make, you know, buying a little cheaper and we build more, then everything will settle itself out. Um, I don't know if that's true. I think, I think only a meaningful price decline is going to bring back the kind of affordability we imagine we have. But that's the affordability we had like 24, 36 months ago. Right. I mean, and, and, oh, sorry. I think that the challenge is that, that, that 
the risk exposure that's been built in as a result of, of COVID, like I think we were talking about that Royal LePage stat, right? 25% of, uh, of millennials purchased a home since the beginning of the pandemic. And, and, yeah. and so, so now, you know, you've created risk in the, in the generation that can afford it the least at, at this point, right? So if you see a correction or mean reversion, it's not boomers who are, they've got years of this growth built in. We're going to have a bunch of negative equity, uh, negative equity millennials, which is scary and not ideal, but is not really going to change your life as long as you keep your nose clean, pay your mortgage, work, get raises, pay down what you owe, you'll be fine. Is there systemic risk associated with that? Oh, no, absolutely. Negative equity is associated with defaults and and negative negative outcomes, there's no question. Um, But... um, I think we're going to, I think when it, when it happens, if it happens, we're going to over-dramatize it, needlessly scare people who have negative equity. It's not, nothing changes in your life if you have it. And well, the like, banks are just going to send them the renewal, you check the renewal box anyway, like realistically. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, true. So a- anyway, I mean, banks are not going to want their houses. Uh, they're going to, gonna, uh, they're going to have too many. Uh, so yeah. Um, Anyway, I, I do think I do think you're right about that. The, the riskiest people are the are the freshest buyers, and we want we want to protect them. We don't want them to go bust. We don't want them to uh, to uh, we want them comfortably affording their mortgages and buying stuff because uh, housing already accounts for too much of the economy. We need other activity. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Thanks a lot for joining us, Rob. It's a very, pleasure very to chat insightful. with you. Very Good chat, guys. I appreciate your data, and I'm happy to get anything you want to send me that digs into the numbers and helps tell the story of what's going on out there. Okay. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we'll chat soon. Take right, care. Take, take care. Thanks, guys.